This is Lead Like It Matters to God, and I'm Rich Stearns. I started this podcast to explore a critical leadership question. How should Christian leaders live out their faith at work? Over the course of my career, I've been the CEO of a toy company, a luxury goods company, and a large Christian ministry. And I've always believed that a leader's character is more important to God than a leader's accomplishments. On each episode, I'll be speaking with a seasoned Christian leader to explore their leadership journey and the values and qualities they believe to be most important in a leader. My guest on today's podcast is Reverend Eugene Cho, who is a former pastor, an author, and a passionate justice advocate. He was the founding pastor of Quest Church in Seattle, where he pastored for 18 years. And then after those 18 years at Quest, Eugene did something that few successful pastors do. He stepped down from leading the church he had founded to follow God's calling in a new direction, a direction that led him to accept the position as president and CEO of Bread for the World. Eugene is the author of two books, with a third about to be published. But what I like most about Eugene is that he named his son Jedi, and he often preached his sermons wearing a Batman t-shirt. Eugene, thanks for joining me today. Your career is so interesting. I know we're going to have a lot to talk about. Rich, thank you again so much for having me. Uh, it's really a, a joy, a personal joy to be able to see you. Yeah, it's good to connect uh, during these COVID times, even by by Zoom. You know, Eugene, we first met because of our shared passion for poverty and justice issues. At the time, I was the president of World Vision, and you were a pastor. And we were both here in the Seattle area. And I want to focus on a line from your bio. You state in your bio that your passions include leadership, justice, the whole gospel, and the pursuit of God's kingdom here on earth. Uh, Talk a little bit about how those passions have shaped your leadership. You know, I think as human beings, we are um, an embodiment of the things that we care about. The things that we care about inform what we want to learn, what we want to invest our time in, how we choose to animate our lives. And so for me, everything really emanates from my identity as a follower of Jesus Christ. The reason why I care about justice is not for the sake of justice. I don't worship justice. I worship a just God. So for me, it's this vision of the whole gospel that Jesus saves, but Jesus is also at work on this world, uh, redeeming, restoring, reconciling things back onto himself. Just in the New Testament alone, there are 70 instances of this phrase, the kingdom of God. And in our world today, where it's so, I think, tempting, uh, seductive to maybe fall, um, be seduced by things of this world, I'm constantly reminded that I want to be about the kingdom of God. You know, that really resonates with me. Uh, In fact, this phrase, the whole gospel, W-H-O-L-E, you'll recall that I wrote a book called The Whole in Our Gospel. And In that book, I wanted to make the point that uh, in many ways, American Christians have shrunken the gospel. We've shrunken it down to a a kind of a fire insurance transaction with God that we, we buy the fire insurance policy, we pray the sinner's prayer, and then we go back to the party, whatever we were doing. And it has no deeper impact on our life or what we do with our lives. And I tried to contrast that with the whole gospel, W-H-O-L-E, which is just as you described it, that, you know, once we are saved, we're saved for a purpose. We're saved 
to be a transformed people who are sent out into the world on the on behalf of Christ to transform the institutions in our world. Whether those institutions are um, corporations or academic systems or government or uh, community, um, but we are to be agents of transformation. And uh, Jesus sent us into the world. I, I like to say that Jesus came to start a revolution, mm. and he's inviting us to join that revolution and be part of that reconciliation process. It's, it's, a, it's, his, it's his rescue mission for the Amen. world, and, and we're to be the, the advance guard for that revolution. Yeah. Amen. Amen to that. Now, along those lines, you know, after you'd been at Quest for a number of years, you did something that was, again, a little unusual. Uh, this theme of unusual is going to come up more than once in your career, Eugene. Uh, unusual or crazy uh, or stupid. Well, you know, choose, choose we'll your let the listeners decide which. But, uh, <laughs> right. uh, but you, you founded a nonprofit organization called One Day's Wages. And as I understand One Day's Wages, it was a, to create a movement of people who would focus on poverty and would be willing to give one day of their wages to fight poverty every year. And hopefully thousands and thousands of people would do that. So talk a little bit about why did you start One Day's Wages and what have you been able to accomplish uh, through that uh, organization? Yeah, and we've been able to partner with organizations like World Vision. So um, let me just step back a little bit. You know, I was born in Seoul, South Korea, and I immigrated to the United States when I was six years old. I uh, just turned 50 recently. And uh, to know me is to know the story of my parents and to know the story of my, of my great-grandparents. My great-grandfather was one of the first people in a small little village outside of a larger city called Pyongyang to say yes to Jesus. Now, for those that might be familiar with North Korea, Pyongyang is now the capital city of North Korea. Uh, he was so moved by the gospel that he goes home and shares this good news about Jesus with my great-grandmother. She comes to faith. Our whole household comes to faith. And eventually, my, my father comes to faith as well. But they experienced incredible challenges. Uh, in fact, if you were to ask my father right now, like, where were you born? His answer is Korea, because when he was born, there was no north or south. Uh, a war breaks out, separating millions of families. But in his life, he endured through hunger and poverty, endured through the rise of communism. He endured through uh, living in a refugee camp away from his family for some time as well. And uh, occasionally he'll still share stories uh, about needing to pull out grass from the ground in order to satisfy his hunger pangs. And the more I learned about my story, I learned about my parents' story, um, I was really just moved by the fact that he would share that during difficult moments of his life, he kept running into Christians, people that were there to help. Uh, and you know this, but World Vision got started in Korea in response to That's hunger, right. in response to people that were going through difficult things. And so while I think there are some rightful criticism of Christianity, I'm also really moved and encouraged by followers of Jesus who take the vision and the imagination and the invitation to the whole gospel seriously. And so these early Christians in Korea, uh, they were uh, encouraged by these Protestant missionaries who went and not only did they come sharing the message of Jesus, but they were 
very instrumental in building the first orphanages, the first schools, the first hospitals. They were out on the streets protesting uh, uh, injustice from the Japanese government at that time with occupation. And so I became that much more moved by the power of the gospel when you see it in motion. So for me, starting One Day's Wages was really about um, giving back and really about being faithful to the message of Jesus Christ, this message of the whole gospel. Yeah, that's, that's powerful. You know, um, years ago, I had a meeting with Ban Ki-moon, who was the Secretary General of the United Nations at that time, and he told his story, and it sounds like it was very similar to your parents' and grandparents' story, uh, in Korea, during the war, suffering as a child. Um, and he basically gave thanks to the humanitarian organizations that came into Korea at that time. Uh, literally, I mean, there were hundreds of thousands of orphans and widows. Children were starving. It was a brutal situation for the people of Korea. And these humanitarian organizations made it possible for Korea to get through that difficult, difficult time. And Ban Ki-moon said that, you know, his education, his food, his uh, even shelter at that time was dependent on these uh, humanitarian organizations that were responding to the need uh, in Korea at that time. And you're right, World Vision was started uh, right in the middle of all of that um, in the Korean conflict. And that was the thing that World Vision's founder, his heart was broken by what he saw in Korea and so he determined he would do something about it. And today, you know, uh, 70 plus years later, uh, World Vision is in 100 countries around the world with 40,000 full-time employees uh, helping the poor mm -hmm. all over the world. And, you know, we talk, uh, used to talk at World Vision about these two Christian concepts, the Great Commission to make disciples in all nations, but also the Great Commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves. And the beauty of this whole gospel idea is that when you put those two together, that loving our neighbors, the great commandment, actually catalyzes the great commission. Because when you show people the love of Christ, you actually draw people to the cross of Christ. And uh, it's just a powerful combination. And yet, you know, so often these two things have been sure, separated sure. in the church, you know, that social justice is suspect because we should only preach the gospel. Sure, Some people sure. believe that and the social justice. And uh, so I, that's a real fallacy and a false dichotomy that when you do both, it's kind of a one plus one equals 10 right. situation. Well, you know, it's interesting over the last 10 or so years, I've had an increasing number of people ask me this question and it's very concerning. The question goes like this, Pastor Eugene, what's more important, justice or evangelism? Mm -hmm. uh, as if these are competing things. When in fact, they really yeah. illuminate the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. You know, I think when we emphasize one without also highlighting the other, we're diminishing the power of the gospel. In some ways, I think it's a, it's a, it's a false gospel. And so it's an incredible reminder and an encouragement to every single one of us, not just leaders, but especially for mm -hmm. leaders. Uh, to to be faithful to the message of the whole gospel. You know, the, the founder of World Vision was a man named Bob Pierce, and he got a lot of criticism in the 1950s for um, his social justice points of view and position and work. 
And he used to get angry and he'd say, you can't preach the gospel to a starving child. You have to feed them first, you know? And he, and he kind of made the point that these things go hand in hand. They go together. You, you, you can't de-link uh, these elements of the teaching of Christ. You have to be holistic about it and, 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 and care about the whole person, not just their, their soul, but their, their body, soul, and spirit. Well, listen, I want to get back to that unusual career of yours. Um, one of the things I write about in my new book on leadership is how important it is for a leader to surrender their career to the Lord, to say, it's not about my ambitions, Lord. It's about your ambitions for me, not about my will, but about thy will. But this word surrender is not a word that most leaders like to have in their vocabulary. You know, and I think it's hard for most of us uh to let our own put our own ambitions aside and take risks for our faith. But you've done that a number of times. So let me just mention two. First, back in 2001, uh, with a young family, you took the risk of starting a church with no salary. That's crazy. So to support your family, you worked as a janitor at Barnes and Noble at night to earn some money so you could preach on Sunday and get your church going. And then more recently, 18 years after founding that church that grew to more than a thousand members, you decided to step down as the pastor voluntarily, but you didn't have another job to go to. So those were risky things to do as a leader, or as you said, were they crazy? Were they risky? Were they stupid? But talk about some of those dramatic turning points in your career, Eugene, and, and what did you learn from them around this idea of surrender? Well, according to my parents, they were both very stupid, but uh, I think uh, you know, my parents have a particular uh, desire to protect me and our family and our three kids. You know, you're right. I think surrender is a word that we love to preach about, but it's uh, a bit more challenging when we're called to embody it and live it in our own lives. Uh, it's funny how there are certain concepts that are easy to preach about. Uh, another one is like Sabbath. I love teaching and preaching about Sabbath. I'm not necessarily someone that can always practice that well. So surrender is one of those things. But, but let me also just share this. At least with the first case in 2001 in Planting Quest Church, it was not my choice to work as a janitor. Um, not to say that that job was beneath me, but like other leaders, I had a plan. I had an agenda. I had an Excel sheet of how I wanted to go about planting Quest Church. It just didn't work out. And the next thing you know, I had no other option. We were on food stamps at that point. The church uh, didn't get off the ground. Uh, there was a market crash at that time and some funders who had committed some resources needed to bail out of their commitments. And so it was at the lowest point of my life that I just needed to get a job. And this was after trying to work at Starbucks, at McDonald's, at Toys R Us. Nobody would hire me because this degree called a Masters of Divinity uh, seemed so strange and odd to them. They thought I was there to like convert and proselytize the other employees. So I finally got a job as a janitor at Barnes & Noble. And it was actually working in the morning at six to nine when the store was completely empty. It's the Barnes and Noble in Linwood off 100 and I believe 96th Street. I wanna go on the record and say that used to be the cleanest Barnes and Noble in the United States, thanks to my hard work. 
Um, and so that was something I had to learn, not because I chose to surrender, but the circumstances in themselves taught me about surrender. Mm-hmm. So what I would love listeners to know is that we can choose to either just move in obedience and surrender and say, God, let your will be done and not mine. And the alternative sometimes is that circumstances will teach us the importance of surrendering. And in that particular case, I'll tell you, it was the most challenging, the most difficult, the most humbling experience that I've, that I've gone through in my life. When you are alone at a 40,000 square foot bookstore by yourself at six o'clock in the morning, every morning, and you don't have an audience like we typically do as pastors or leaders, Mm -hmm. uh, your conversations with God become very raw, very honest, and very personal. And that experience taught me so much about trusting God. And so for me, surrendering is really about, do you trust God or not? Do you trust God, not just in the mountaintops, but also trust God in your valleys, trusting God when the roads are really clear, it's somewhat easy, but trusting God, surrendering when things remain very cluttered and cloudy and uncertain. Uh, But I learned so much about faith during that moment. Mm, Yeah. You know, sometimes I think God brings us to that low point um, to do some work with us, you know, to to focus us on him. You know, I, I've always loved the story of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, depending on God every day to wake up and know that there would be food, manna on the ground to eat. Totally helpless, totally dependent on God, because I think he wanted them to understand that Everything you have, the next breath you take comes from me. And only in dependence on me will you succeed. Will you be my people? Will you be um, uh, in my will if you are totally surrendered and dependent upon me? You know, in my own life, you know, you talked about that low point. For me, it came when I got fired from my job. When I was 33, I became the CEO of Parker Brothers Games, Monopoly, Clue, Sorry, and Nerf Balls. Mm. And I couldn't believe it. And then two years later, I very abruptly got fired from that job. So I went from the corner office to a corner of my basement uh, Mm. where I had a chair and a desk and I was trying to figure out what to do next. But for the next number of months, I just, God just did a lot of work in my head And it was almost like, Rich, I finally got you where I want you, helpless and dependent Mm -hmm. on me. And during that time of unemployment, uh, that's a feeling of helplessness. You know, you you can't get a job. Somebody has to offer you a job. So you are constantly hoping and praying that somebody will offer you a job so you can get back to work and get an income again and, you know, resume your, your career or whatever it might be. And so that period of helplessness, I I think, was so important in my spiritual development, because when I finally did get back to work, um, you know, I was much more dependent on God and much more aware of my responsibility as a follower of Christ uh, Mm. to be faithful to, you know, his calling on my life. So um, those of you that might be in a time of unemployment right now, don't waste the crisis, because this may be the time where your spiritual growth accelerates like crazy. 
But Eugene, mm. tell me about the, the second crazy thing you did. You, you quit your job sure. at, uh, at Quest Church, and I don't think you had a job lined up at that point um, at Bread for the World. So what was your thought process there? Yeah, you know, uh, what I tell people is that I fired myself. <laughs> you know, as a founding pastor, um, there's a certain privilege and luxury that you have, you know, apart from some sort of a major moral crisis. And I want to make sure that it's very clear there was nothing of that sort. But, you know, it's almost impossible for churches uh, to, I think, um, move on to the next chapter from founding pastors unless they themselves felt like it was time to make that transition. So my wife and I, we love our church. Uh, we still uh, consider it our home church. Uh, we, we, our kids still go there. Uh, we shop at the Trader Joe's right across Quest Church in Ballard. It's a very special community to us. It's probably not the healthiest analogy, but it feels like a child to us in many ways. And at the age of 18, we felt like it was time to let this church go. And uh, for a couple of years after we moved locations and completed a major capital campaign, some folks in Seattle might know that some years ago we ended up purchasing what used to be the former Mars Hill Church headquarters. And after several years of capital campaign, we paid it off. And once that was done, I found myself got to just praying, God, what would you have me do next? Would you want me to be at Quest for the next 10, 20 years continuing to build this church, or uh, as my wife and I, we were approaching our 50th uh, birthday, we began to just discern for the next chapter of our lives, um, how would we want to offer this as a sacrifice, as part of our worship to God? So needless to say, it was incredibly hard because we worked so hard to, um, again, it's probably not the best phrase, but to kind of arrive, you know, we've have the largest Protestant church facility in Seattle, a successful church. And I'm using my air quotes here. Uh, but again, just praying, Lord, what's your will? What would you have us do? All along in the back of our minds, my wife and I had made a pledge to each other. We had always said uh, that we would always choose obedience over comfort, no matter what. Uh, and that if there was ever a time that we felt called to move on from Quest, we would do so at a time of health and flourishing for the church. So Quest is far from a perfect church, but we witnessed that health and vitality. And so uh, it took some time to do so, but we made that decision and walked the church through that process. And I'll just say one more thing, and, and maybe it'll provoke more questions for you. It was hard. I didn't realize how hard that transition was going to be until after we had stepped down. Because it was after stepping down for the first 18 or so months, I began to realize how much of my self-identity was woven into uh, my role as a pastor of that church. You know, I used to say as a pastor, stuff like, you know what, buildings don't matter, budgets don't matter, size don't matter, these things don't matter. And I think I was able to say those things because in the back of my mind, um, Quest, uh, quote unquote, had some of those things. So even in that decision, God was doing more work on my soul about my identity and where my worth came from. Uh, but that was the reason why, you know, I made that decision. Um, again, I think for all mm -hmm. of us, we're running a marathon. 
And our desire is to run a marathon ultimately for God's glory and God's honor. And that's what we're hoping to do. Let me pick up on that marathon idea because I have uh, five grown children who are all in early stages of their career. And one of the things I say to them, especially if they're dissatisfied with their current job, right, which often young people have a job, but they're not really happy in it. And they're wondering what could be next, or they're dreaming about what would the perfect job be. And, and I like to tell them that, you know, a career is a very long time. Um, if you work full time for most of your working life, you will work 40 to 50 years uh, at something, uh, whatever your profession might be, whether you're a pastor or a corporate person or a teacher um, or a doctor. And uh, over the course of a long career, you're likely, most people are likely to make quite a few job changes and even shifts in their career. Um, so how do you, what would you say to a younger person that maybe in a, a job they don't like and they, you know, they're 29 years old or 35 years old and they feel trapped and they, 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 they don't see where they're going? Um, how do you go through that discernment process of, Lord, what is it you have for me? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's such a relevant question for all the reasons that you mentioned. You know, when I pastored Quest, um, the majority of our congregants were in their 20s and 30s navigating the challenges of um, what I call the privilege of options, uh, the privilege of being um, not content. Um, and so I think for me, it's not so much what decision someone makes, but how they go about making those decisions. And so a few recommendations that I would make to some of my congregants that I think about right now for the purpose of this question is to think about um, making sure that we're lifting it in prayer, uh, that it's not just something that's compartmentalized apart from our relationship with God. God never promises us a life of happiness, never promises a life of bliss. You know, that is a myth that we've somehow concocted in our Western Christianity. Um, but make sure that we are walking and abiding in our relationship with Christ, whatever decisions we're making. That would be one. The second thing I think is to make sure that we're walking in community. Um, we're not alone in some of these wrestles and struggles. Uh, we're not alone in some of these choices that we have to make. So I think it's so important to gather and to be intentional about building a small community or a community of like-minded, like-hearted women and men that seek to live a life of mission and purpose for which our jobs, our vocations are a part of. And the third thing that I would just say is to not exclude um, a, a, a culture of gratitude. It's amazing because for that same person that, that is currently not content, uh, not that long ago, we were praying for that same job and it was an answer to prayer. And I'm not suggesting that a person shouldn't have the freedom to make shifts and changes and decisions in their life. Uh, we certainly have that right. But sometimes when we choose to bail too quickly, I think we uh, rob ourselves of the character-forming experiences, similar to what you endured through when you were working in that corner desk in your basement. Uh, you are who you are now because of that experience. Uh, working as a janitor at Barnes & Noble, it was so hard and so challenging. If I knew 
we were going to go through that, I wouldn't have said yes to that invitation to plant quest. But I am who I am now because of that experience. So let's make sure that as we're going through seasons of challenge, to still be very sensitive and open and aware of what the Holy Spirit desires to teach us and guide us during that time. Uh, in other words, I think we have to just make sure that we always look for opportunities to be grateful, to, to, to swim in a, a, um, a culture of gratitude in our lives. Those three things are what I would encourage folks to ponder and think about. Well, that's, uh, that's terrific advice for younger leaders and uh, who might be struggling where they're, they're currently planted. And, um, you know, um, get back to that word surrender, that if you are really surrendered to the Lord, you say, Lord, not my will, but thy will. Um, I don't really like this job I'm in right now, but you've placed me here. You know, I am here. And so one of the things I learned is that you can serve the Lord mm -hmm. wherever you're planted, Amen. right? You, you, uh, um, you know, I was raised Catholic and we had this catechism question, why did God make you and we had to memorize the answer to love, serve, and obey him in this world. <clears throat> and um, so we can love, serve, and obey God in a dead-end job. We can love, serve, and obey God as a CEO or a senior pastor. Uh, we can even love, serve, and obey God unemployed between jobs, you know. And so once you kind of accept that, that, you know, my... My identity is not in the title on my business card or the place where I currently am planted. My identity is in Christ, and I can love, serve, and obey Christ uh, in any circumstance. And uh, which you know, Paul famously wrote about. He 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 learned to be content in all situations. So that's great advice. And um, you know, I want to uh, move to your bread for the world move here because you're now at bread for the world and. Tell us a little bit about that organization and uh, what's your, what got you excited about that as your next step in your career? Well, gosh, that's a great question. Uh, but just for those that might not be familiar with Bread for the World, it's amazing to me how many times people have said, hey, congrats on your new job at Bread for Life. I'm not quite sure who, who I'm not quite sure who Bread for Life is, but Bread for the World is a Christian advocacy organization urging our lawmakers to help end hunger in our nation and around the world. And it's this simple philosophy, this conviction that there are many ways to end hunger. And all of these ways are very important, whether someone gives to a local food bank, whether it's direct um, service like World Vision. Uh, we are urging our lawmakers, our members of Congress, the White House administration, our president, our governors. We're urging our lawmakers to lead with empathy, compassion, and moral courage. I think a lot of folks don't realize how much of a role government has in conducting works of justice in our nation and around the world. And so because Christians tend to do mercy and compassion, like that's where our natural inclination is, we're trying to also help Christians see advocacy as part of their Christian discipleship. Uh, uh, a, an analogy that I sometimes use is that we do a lot of work. In fact, every single day is advocacy. We don't do any direct relief work. We do work upstream so that other organizations downstream can reap some of the benefits of the advocacy that we're doing. 
another point that I'll just make is uh, we're not advocating for our own resources. We don't receive funding from the government, but we are petitioning the government with thoughtful analysis, thoughtful research, and certainly coalition building. We're urging Christians to raise up their voices, uh, urge Congress to do their part, and it then benefits food banks. It benefits organizations like World uh, Vision and others uh, to be able to do the important work of uh, direct services. You know, one of the things that uh, I heard for many years at World Vision from Christians is helping the poor is not the government's job. It's the job of the church. And that used to really frustrate me because we all have a role in helping the poor, right? And government has a unique role to play that only they can play. And so as Christians, don't we want the government to uh, to promote justice and to do what they can to create systems and structures that help the poor in our, in our own country and, and around the world? And one of the things that I don't think Christians fully realize is how powerful advocacy can be. I'll give you one example. Back during the AIDS pandemic in the early 2000s in Africa, we did a huge amount of advocacy toward the Bush administration to respond to HIV and AIDS, to do some things that only the US government could do. And what the result was is the passing of the PEPFAR legislation, the president's uh, AIDS relief plan. Uh, it was a bipartisan vote. It passed by a wide margin and it committed $15 billion over five years to help widows and orphans in Africa and people affected with HIV and AIDS. Well, there's no way that American churches could have mobilized that kind of resource uh, to help people with HIV in Africa. And the Bush administration was also able to work with foreign governments receiving that aid to help them focus on the needs of their own people and their own society. So advocacy can have a huge multiplication effect. Now, at the same time, World Vision, a Christian organization, we were on the ground in Africa and we were serving those people. We were helping the widows who had lost their husbands. We were helping the orphans that had lost both of their parents to HIV and AIDS. So it was kind of a, a one plus one equals 10 again, you know, that the Christian organizations on the ground were making a huge difference. But then the government uh, was making a, a big difference globally by supporting the governments of Uganda and South Africa and, and Ethiopia as they fought the AIDS battle from above, right? So uh, it was just a, an amazing partnership. And uh, what I learned through my years at World Vision is the power of advocacy to multiply our voices. I, I posit in my book that God is much more concerned about a leader's values than he is about a leader's accomplishments. So, you know, pick a leader, they can accomplish A, B, C, and D, and maybe get great kudos for doing that. But the question that God wants to ask is, well, how did you accomplish that? And what kind of, what was your character? How did you treat the people around you? Um, did you have integrity? Did you, did you demonstrate humility? Were you a good ambassador for Christ in your workplace, whatever that workplace might be? You've been a leader at a church and now a nonprofit. Um, 
What are the two or three most important leadership values that you found uh, important in your leadership as a Christian leader? You know, uh, it's a great question. And, you know, I would just begin by saying uh, we need to know who we are and who we worship and what we're about. I think the idea really wrestling with who do we worship, everything flows from there. We all worship someone or something. If we worship money, for example, uh, mammon, and it's pretty telling that Jesus, while there is only one true God, he sees mammon as a competitor to the worship of God. But if we worship mammon, it then begins to inform our ethics and our values and what we're pursuing. So even before I speak about specific characters or specific qualities or traits about leadership, I think for us as followers of Jesus, uh, the quintessential question that I would ask is, who do we worship? Because then that will help shape how I see myself and how I want to live my life. Now, having said that, you know, I think there are numerous things that stand out for me. Uh, But just for me in my life, I want to make sure that um, humility is a part of my leadership, that um, the goal isn't to uh, build my logo, my branding, my platform in a culture that I think has a frenetic uh, pace about creating your own branding or image. Um, And I'm I think there's room and place for these things. Like you've written a book and so you're going to market the book and you're going to get out there. But ultimately, like we want to know that there's going to come a time when we will all have our last physical breath. And I just pray that I can bring more fascination to the person, to the work, to the kingdom of God, that more women and men and children are drawn to the power of the gospel as a result of those things. I think the second thing is just honesty Uh, in a culture right now where phrases like fake news is being thrown about in such um, frequent ways. I think it is an issue. I think we have a hard time knowing what we can trust from our respective leaders whose agenda might really be about power or about fame. So I think truth telling is also very important. The last one that I'll just share that's important to me is just courage. Uh, It's hard being a leader. For those who are listening, if you want to live a safe life, a very drama-free life, don't pray for leadership. It is hard because to be a leader (laughs) means you are inviting criticism, challenge, and disagreement. That's what leadership entails along with other things. And so I think it requires you to do work to make sure that you've thought through all the complexities and nuances and to have the moral courage to pursue what you believe is right, even if you know there's going to be criticism. No, those are, those are good thoughts, you know, and one of the things you said, uh, in something you wrote is you said, personally, I'm recovering from a savior messianic complex. And I want to frame that. I want to frame that question this way. You know, we, uh, sadly, we have seen far too many church and ministry leaders fall from grace and into scandal in recent years. And, you know, I can go back many, many years. It's not a new phenomenon. You know, it's been going on uh, probably since uh, 
since Peter was the first pope, right? You know, that leaders, Christian leaders have fallen into disrepute or have been involved in some kind of scandal. And um, uh, I want to read you a quote from my book on leadership, Lead Like It Matters to God, and just have you react to it with that in mind, you know, the the challenge or the, the pitfalls for Christian leaders uh, in this time. And here's the quote. I believe that one of the greatest traps that leaders fall into is believing their own press clippings. Quote, I must be great because other people are saying so. And look what I've accomplished, unquote. Leadership always comes with power and power has a way of going to our heads. So comment on that, maybe in your own life, uh, uh, and in terms of pastors out there who have achieved a great deal of fame and success and accomplishment. Well, this doesn't make for a good interview, but my response is I want to drop a mic because I think that's basically what you did. I mean, I think you spoke the truth as plainly, as honestly, uh, and pastorally and prophetically as well. And I think you're absolutely right. Leaders will struggle through this. Individuals will will struggle with this. All of us, there is a tendency, a proclivity to think much and more about ourselves rather than ultimately realizing that we're just merely vessels. It's a temptation. It's a trap. It's a seduction. You know, when I think about um, how I can use what you wrote in your book as a word of encouragement to pastors and leaders, this is one of the reasons why I'm so fascinated by the leadership of both Jesus and John the Baptist. You know, there were so many people that wanted to elevate John the Baptist as the Messiah. He was the it person. Granted, he was not the most well-dressed person, (laughs) but I mean, people looked at John the baptizer and there were rumors that he was maybe the Messiah and he could have exploited that situation and milked it for all it's worth. And yet he always kept saying, I'm not worthy of the one that will come. I'm not even worthy to deal with this person's sandals. And so I think we see this posture of acknowledging that sometimes it's not maybe generating within, it happens from outside. People are going to constantly give us praise and adoration. And so we have to, again, surround ourselves with other voices that love us enough to speak, again, plainly uh, and honestly the fact that all of us have fallen short of God's glory. We're just merely vessels and that we have to create, I think, spaces within our lives to make sure that we don't believe in our own press clippings as you've shared. You know, one of the things I advise leaders to do is, first of all, surround yourself with capable, godly people, right? Um, And then give them permission to criticize you, to challenge your ideas, to, you know, we've all seen situations where the the big man or the big woman comes in uh, to the conference room and all eyes are on that person because they're the the, the big kahuna, right? And, um, and they start sharing their ideas or their vision or whatever. And uh, if the people in the room are afraid to challenge that, uh, afraid to ask questions or uh, come up with a better idea, 
what happens is that leader gets reinforced and reinforced and reinforced and never gets any honest feedback. Uh, and so it's very easy for the power to go to their head because they're surrounded by sycophants who say just what they want to hear. You're so great. You're amazing. Your preaching is phenomenal. And it's so much healthier to have people in the room that say, you know what, that sermon you preached Sunday was a little off. And, and here's what I think. And here's my idea. And here's how I think you could do better. Or, or you're in a meeting and you throw out an idea. And instead of everybody nodding their head and writing it down, somebody raises their hand and says, hey, Eugene, or hey, Rich, um, what about this as an idea? Because here's a problem I see with what you just said. And um, we make better decisions as leaders when we listen to godly people around us and we are willing to get off of our high horse and get down to the same level as other people and, and realize that those people that God has put around us are each made in God's image with unique gifts and talents. Uh, so we have like a, a heavenly choir of people around us if we will just listen to them. I really need people to stand up and say, Rich, that's a dumb idea. Or Rich, I think it'd be a better idea if you changed it in this way. And the thing about a leader is if you do that, it will encourage people to share their ideas, right? And if you shut them down, if they criticize something you've said and you shut them down saying, hey, you know, that's not what I said. I want to do this and, you know, I don't forget your idea. Then those people are never going to share their ideas with you again because you've punished them for being truthful and being honest. So I think the most important thing a leader can do is to give permission to the people around them. And, and the, the more powerful you are as a leader, the more important it is to humble yourself to listen to others. Well, Rich, that was a dumb statement. No, that was a joke. Uh, just, just kidding. Just kidding. No, I, I, I just absolutely agree with you. You know, I think uh, that the challenges of leadership, there's so much good that we can do. And there's a burden to leadership, but there are certainly snares and traps. And for leaders, you know, I'm reminded about a book that um, was written by, I believe, Richard Foster called Money, Sex, and mm -hmm. Power. Uh, all of these are uh, uh, traps and snares, and particularly this issue of power. When we use it to abuse, when we use it to dominate others, and this is why I think the leadership of Jesus is so countercultural, and we can keep learning from it again and again and again. When ultimately he chooses during his final few days on earth. Um, before his resurrection, he chooses to wash the very feet of his very own disciples, including the one that he knew was going to wow. betray him. Um, there's something just so challenging, countercultural, kingdom-esque about Jesus's leadership. Well, Eugene, I think we're going to leave it there. That is a wonderful uh, word to end on uh, for leaders who are listening to this podcast. I greatly admire your own leadership, uh, the story of your life. I can't wait to see what God does through you at Bread for the World. Thank you, Rich. Take care. God bless you. Thanks for joining Rich Stearns today on the podcast and check out his new book, Lead Like It Matters to God, Values-Driven Leadership in a Success-Driven World. In this book, Rich draws on his experience as a CEO in three different organizations to offer important insights and advice for Christian leaders. 
Learn more about the 17 leadership values that can transform your own leadership effectiveness. Lead Like It Matters to God is available in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook formats.